You're listening to The Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers. We look forward to having you join us at the table. Hello, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're going to be talking about developments in the area of ESG, in particular, where the regulatory action is in this space right now. My name is Leah Malone. I'm a partner in Simpson Thatcher's new ESG and sustainability practice. Joining me today, I have three colleagues within the practice. Matt Feely is a counsel from our London office. Emily Holland is a counsel from our DC office joining us today. And last, we have Carolyn Houston, who's a counsel based in New York City, along with myself. We're going to talk about how ESG is playing out through the regulatory space. And we are going to try not to throw too many acronyms at you. But Matt, let's start with one, SFDR, which is the Sustainability Finance Disclosure Regulation. Matt, this is an EU rule mainly focused on improving transparency for investment products. Can you kick us off with a brief refresher for those of us who are not thinking about SFDR all day, every day, like you are, in terms of what the law requires and uh, how clients are kind of dealing with it right now at this moment. Sure. Thanks, Leah. So I think the clue is in the name, partly, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation. And what this is really aiming to do is for those financial market participants that are managing assets for others to make clear what their ESG ambitions are, what the scope of the implementation of sustainability considerations is as part of that investment process. And all of that comes together in a series of required disclosures that have to be made to investors, both on a pre-contractual basis, through periodic reporting, and in some cases through public website disclosures as well. And really the focus of the EU in introducing this legislation is to help investors make better capital allocation decisions to accord more closely to their sustainability preferences and also to their sustainability risk profiles and considerations around where they see strategies on ESG developing. And what's been really interesting is that the EU has really tried to sort of lead the field on this. So where we are in terms of implementation, we've already had SFDR in the statute books for a couple of years now. And so since March 2021, firms have been required to make these disclosures. And so over that time, we've seen sort of an increasing level of sophistication and awareness on the part of asset managers in particular, but also on the part of investors when they're receiving this information. So talk to me a little bit about these different designations, Article 6, Article 8, Article 9. Give us a little bit of a refresher on kind of what that means and how sponsors are dealing with that. Yeah, for sure. And I think this 6, 8, and 9 distinction is the thing that gets a lot of attention. But what I think it's worth pausing on just to reflect again is that this is a disclosure regime. So those 6, 8, and 9 designations are not strictly labels, although they've kind of taken on that character. But to be clear, Article 6 is applicable to all firms that are within the scope of this legislation. And in particular, that requires firms to disclose their approach to sustainability risks, which are ultimately just a type of financial risk. Sustainability risks are ultimately just a type of financial risk. 
but it's a type of financial risk that the European regulators want specific attention paid to. And as I said, this is applicable to all firms that are in the scope of SFDR. And so actually, when we refer to, quote, an Article 6 fund, really all we're saying is that that is a fund that is in scope of Article 6, but no more. And the key distinction is Article 8 and Article 9 are much more ESG-focused products where you're looking at externalities and the consideration of a particular fund or a particular portfolio's impact on certain key ESG indicators that are outside of those purely financial considerations. One of the things that we've seen in the news and with our clients as well is kind of shifting investments between these different articles. So how is that playing out for our clients, your clients, and kind of what are you hearing in that space in terms of concern about potential liability or other risks from having kind of misclassified your fund? Yeah, so a big story at the end of last year was that there was a very large amount of capital that was reclassified from Article 9 into Article 8. And the key distinction there is that Article 9 is the highest level of ambition that's reflected under this SFDR framework. And in particular, an Article 9 fund is required to be invested in sustainable investments. And sustainable investments is a particular term of art that carries a certain meaning. But in summary, it's to evidence that the investments in that fund are making a contribution to a defined environmental or social objective, but importantly are not doing any significant harm to any other environmental or social objective. So there's a consideration there inherent in a holistic sense in which a given investment is sustainable rather than just having a more narrow focus on one particular area or one particular aspect. The reclassification that came about that we saw last year was really driven by a piece of regulatory guidance that made clear that an Article 9 fund must be 100% invested in sustainable investments. Added then to a new template that has been in force since the 1st of January this year, which requires much more granularity in terms of a firm and a fund's commitment to making those sustainable investments. And so during 2022, we saw a pinch point where perhaps certain firms realized that their strategy wouldn't be able to guarantee that. And so they moved back to the relative safety of Article 8. Now, there's been much commentary around the nature of that change. But I think in large part, what you would see is that firms that have done that have done that in response to greater regulatory clarification and have arguably not changed their underlying approach. There may be circumstances in the future where we get additional regulatory guidance or additional regulatory clarity that would cause a firm to have to reassess its classification. But for the most part, the idea within SFDR is that you're expressing your intentionality. And the idea is that you make those commitments and that you should be held accountable for the commitments that you've made, which from a legal perspective makes the drafting of those commitments and those disclosures in your PPM or offering document very, very important. Yeah, you need really good lawyers to help you with that, right, Matt? Carolyn, can you jump in here and talk to us a little bit about your practice, primarily based from the United States, but of course dealing with these big multinational private equity funds and how they're thinking about these issues, but a little bit more from the U.S. perspective. Thanks, Leah. So on the U.S. sponsor side, initially when the SFDR came into effect, the majority of our funds that were in scope were classified as Article 6. Now, as time has passed and the scope of SFDR obligations has become more clear, 
as well as combined with an increase in some European LPs expressing a preference for Article 8 funds in what is now somewhat of a more challenging fundraising environment, we are seeing more of our U.S. sponsors at least exploring what it would take to become mm -hmm. Article 8 or actually classifying funds that are uh, coming into market as, as Article 8. And that's what we call light green, right, Carolyn? That's right. We are seeing very few Article 9 funds on the, on the U.S. side, which to me actually makes a lot of sense because U.S. sponsors aren't really crafting investment strategies and objectives around a European uh, regulation. Now, the, the preference for Article 8 funds by European LPs um, seems to follow kind of the overall view in Europe that Matt was speaking about, which is to say that taking into account sustainability is a net positive. Now, this preference aligns well with investors in the U.S. in our so-called blue states, such as California and New York. These states and investors in them um, have also been turning their attention towards ESG over the years in their private market investments, have also begun shifting their capital away from fossil fuel investments. Now, in the U.S., we also have a separate category of LPs that tend to be from so-called red states. This would be like Texas and Florida. And here, taking into account ESG is not viewed in the same way as it is in, in Europe and these other blue states. And so the first wave of this, this is sort of the red state, blue state, pro-ESG, anti-ESG that we've started to see. There was a first wave of this showing up in Texas. And there, a couple of years ago, a bill was um, put forth designed to help Texas protect its fossil fuel-based economy. And, and this bill essentially prevented investments by Texas plans into companies that, quote, boycott energy companies. Now, this type of bill was more likely to pick up public issuers than, than private funds. Our private funds tend not to boycott industries in this way, nor divest as a strategy. It's not an ESG investing approach in the private funds space. Some other states followed the Texas fossil fuel bill approach, like Oklahoma, West Virginia. And now we're experiencing this second wave of anti-ESG bills in the U.S. Um, it goes broader than, than merely uh, addressing fossil fuel investments. And each bill is drafted a little bit differently. And each state is in various stages of um, adoption of, of such bills. But es essentially the theme is these kind of red state bills are trying to make clear that their state plans may only invest based on pecuniary factors. And then what these bills are trying to do is define ESG as, by definition, non-pecuniary. And what these bills are doing, I think, Carolyn, correct me if I'm wrong, is that they're kind of directing the way that the state pension funds and other buckets of kind of state money can be invested. Is that right? Right. They're trying to steer their own state capital in the direction that the, the leaders of the states are trying to steer their own capital, which unlike Europe, which is trying to sort of steer it in a, towards the sustainable, you know, more sustainable manner. There are some states, not all, but right, we have this, we have this mix where some states view ESG and sustainability as a positive and some view it as unnecessary and outside of the scope of their investments. 
we're seeing more inquiries from clients on the anti-ESG bill than the pro-ESG bill, and they take different flavors, uh, but there have been some challenges that, that clients have needed to consider. And one thing to highlight, too, is that there also may be exceptions in the bills that could permit private fund investments to essentially continue as usual if, for example, you know, divesting from a, an existing investment might negatively impact pecuniary factors and fiduciary duties. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a missing link in some of these bills, which is to say that they are failing to take into account that consideration of ESG can be pecuniary. And in fact, the vast majority of our clients, right, are, are doing this all in the context of avoiding risk and maximizing returns. They're not doing it in a manner that is totally disconnected from pecuniary factors or the, the fund's ordinary investment objective. In fact, we've seen some state plan LPs in funds recognize this gap and try to redraft a proposed bill in order to make this Emily, clear. what are you seeing from your perspective when it comes to this kind of state versus state and, and how companies are dealing with it? Absolutely, Leah. Just to build on what Carolyn's just described, it's a challenging topography, no doubt. Questions and concerns from clients are understandable. This is a hot-button topic, one of several associated with the global megatrend or colossus that is ESG and is itself a hot-button topic. I think the questions are you know, particularly understandable given the increasing number, variety, and breadth of bills, which are in some cases becoming more prescriptive and often come with significant penalties attached in comparison to laws already on the books. However, we've drilled down into the data, and it's important to emphasize that this is a picture that is both nuanced and also evolving. And what do I mean here? First, as Carolyn noted, you know, whether you're looking at bills that prohibit state support of ESG investing or prohibit ESG in state contracting and procurement or, or other varietals, many, not all, but many contain notable exceptions. With respect to laws or, or bills that would prohibit consideration of ESG factors in investment decisions. Emily, you mentioned the SEC's climate disclosure rule. So, you know, when I just kind of take half a step back and put all of what we've talked about already in perspective, we have this EU regime, SFDR, really focused on transparency and disclosure. As Matt said, you're not forced into one of these categories. You choose it and then you describe how your fund meets these different criteria. Then we have these state laws that are really much more about kind of directing investment of state assets. They're really telling investors what they can and cannot do with their money. So let's move back to another disclosure element. I'm like, can you bring us up to date on the SEC climate disclosure rule, which, uh, as we all know, is still in proposed form? Current rumblings are that the SEC might finalize the rule sometime in April. But this has been kind of top of mind for U.S. listed issuers for a while. Can you just give us a little bit of a refresher on kind of what that rule said and what clients are particularly concerned about in terms of having new disclosure requirements here? Happy to do so. As you note, a lot of attention and concern here. This rule, as currently drafted, proposes sweeping requirements on publicly listed companies that will be required to include significant climate-related disclosures in their registration statements and periodic reports. It will promote an intensity of data collection and, and tracking obligations and costs that 
we haven't yet seen in the United States. This rule will mandate new governance structures, strategies, risk management disclosures, emissions data disclosures, and reporting. In essence, this rule will require is companies to apply the, the rigor of financial reporting to ESG reporting in a way that the EU is, is gotten out in front of, but again, has not been appreciated or, or exercised to any comparable degree in the U.S. What I think is less understood, Leah, uh, and, and important to note, is the relevance this rule has to the private market. What do I mean here? So obviously, this rule applies to issuers. But many, for instance, private equity firms that are publicly traded, listed on public stock exchanges, will also be required to adhere to this rule. They will be required to assess the range of climate risks that they're in their portfolio companies face. Second, firms that are private, not listed, can anticipate, can frankly count on pressure for data and emissions reductions where they operate within a public company's value chain. This is the cascade effect we've witnessed with respect to many other ESG-related rules. Third, take a PE company with, you know, portfolio company going public. These companies will be required to include this information in their registration statements and, of course, will be subject to annual reporting requirements post-IPO. Fourth, and finally, there's simply a growing consensus that climate-related risks are shared across public and private markets, which is resulting in growing pressure from stakeholders, society more broadly, to understand the private equity industry's contributions to systemic ESG risks and to promote transparency at both the GP and PC level. So with this in mind, how can companies prepare? How are they preparing? Obviously, any given response will depend on a variety of factors, including but not limited to the extent of ESG integration, of companies' ownership or influence with respect to portfolio companies, competing business concerns and equities, but may include, first and foremost, developing greater facility with and incorporating ESG approaches across the investment lifecycle. Second, conducting a GHD inventory. Third, evaluating, conducting a gap analysis, really, of existing systems, processes, and reports in view of the forthcoming rule. Fourth, ensuring that technological infrastructure is equipped to generate the high-volume, high-quality, highly comparable data uh, that will be required and, and leveraging digital technologies where tech isn't up to par. Finally, identifying how portfolio companies can successfully compete and stay relevant after they've left a fund's control, which may require adapting business models or financing in view of the transition to clean energy, decarbonization of assets and operations. So plenty of work here, Emily, for our clients and for us as we think about these rules being finalized in the somewhat near future. Matt, let's take us back across the pond just as the U.S. is thinking about, you know, finalizing these disclosure rules and companies are grappling with what that would look like. Give us a couple of sort of lessons learned from the U.K. perspective coming from a part of the world where this type of disclosure has uh, been out in the public markets for a period of time. So I think what's interesting listening to Emily's description of what the SEC rules are going to look like is that I hear that to be very similar to what the UK is looking at doing in respect of TCFD aligned reporting. So that's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, which has set out 
a number of recommendations relating to climate risks and opportunities. And so we've seen that in the UK now already for publicly listed entities with a premium listing. We're going to see that this year for publicly listed entities with a standard listing. So that would be companies on the London Stock Exchange, for example. But the UK is really running with TCFD. And I think that's perhaps in part reflected by the fact that Mark Carney um, was formerly the governor of the Bank of England. We're also therefore seeing TCFD requirements in the, the real economy, as it were. So if you are a private company in the UK that exceeds a large threshold, you are now required for financial periods commencing after April 2022 to report in alignment with the TCFD requirements. If you are an asset manager that is FCA regulated, this year, if you have over 50 billion in AUM, that's pounds, you're required to comply with TCFD reporting. From next year, if you are an asset manager with 5 billion AUM, again, sterling, you're also required to report under TCFD. So there's this really holistic approach that the UK is taking towards climate and climate risk disclosures. And again, you know, coming back to this pecuniary versus non-pecuniary outlook, TCFD is very much focused on financial materiality. What's interesting though is when you look across to Europe, what they are wanting to do on their corporate reporting through the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive or CSRD, that came into law at the end of last year, but will be implemented from 2024 onwards. They're very much looking at what's called double materiality. So taking financial materiality and those financially relevant risks and opportunities, but then building on that and saying, well, not only do you have to disclose what the impact of, say, climate change or biodiversity, et cetera, is on your business, but what is the impact of your business on the climate? What is the impact of your business on biodiversity? What is the impact of your business on society as measured against certain key metrics? And so they're taking this outward-looking approach in addition to the sort of inward-looking financial materiality. And again, certainly from an EU perspective, the idea is that by requiring those corporate disclosures, we have high-quality information all the way up the investment chain. So if I am a pension fund and I have my stakeholders and my stakeholders are interested in the environment, my stakeholders are interested in societal issues, based on the information that I'm being provided up that investment chain, then I can more credibly make asset allocation decisions and I can more credibly report to my own stakeholders. And so I think, you know, really, again, from a UK perspective already to some extent with TCFD, but certainly on the EU perspective, it's really about helping people investors make better decisions based on their preferences. All right. Carolyn, can you give us uh, a little bit of an update on some of the other ESG-related rules that are applying specifically to private funds and how they're thinking about those rules? Sure. Uh, there's one proposed rule, and then there's maybe a couple of other points that I'll highlight that are not related to rules per se. But Similar to the climate change uh, disclosure rule that the SEC has promulgated for public companies, they have also put forth a proposed, a proposed rule for uh, investment advisors. It was proposed in May of last year. On balance, this proposed rule is not expected to be as onerous as the public company rule if it is adopted in its current form. 
I am expecting the public company rule to be settled and finalized first. So if that comes this year, you know, then, then they might turn their attention to the, the private fund rule. But on balance, as I said, not expected to be particularly onerous, mostly additional disclosure and questions in the form ADV that will be based upon disclosures already provided in the um, offering documents. And then speaking of the SEC, under existing rules, I just want to highlight that there is um, extra attention being paid by the SEC on all things ESG. So uh, under the current rules, without any new rules, there is just an increased focus in both exams and enforcement actions. Now, dovetailed with the new marketing rule that came into play uh, November of last year, all sponsors should be prepared to substantiate any and all ESG claims in marketing materials, and that is in terms of both substance and process. On the enforcement side, there have been a couple of cases where the SEC has a couple of enforcement action cases. They, though thus far, have been focused on funds marketed to retail investors, but essentially those sponsors were stating that they were applying certain ESG practices in their marketing materials, and then in practice, they simply were not. Just a couple of other sort of market observations, you know, just tying it back to the SFDR. We're now at like a somewhat uncomfortable point where U.S. sponsors are having to consider whether they can be all things to all LPs, including both European LPs and, and red state LPs, or whether the more that they say about ESG and the more that their practices evolve are essentially going to alienate the red state LPs, at least in the near term. I, I believe the red state kind of LPs will, will figure out this is not going to be a good investment strategy for them. And then just one additional observation on the practice side, we are seeing just a slight increase in clients exploring um, impact fund strategies, thinking about how they might launch one anew. And then in certain instances, we're seeing non-impact funds, non-ESG funds incorporating more and more impact and ESG features into their fund, for example, linking their carry to ESG KPIs. So clear, you know, there's a lot happening in this space from a regulatory perspective, from an investment perspective. There's risks, there's opportunities abound. Emily, can you just close us out? Look into your crystal ball for me. For the next, you know, six to 12 months, what's the kind of biggest thing that stands out to you that clients should be worried about? Maybe something they're not thinking about yet, but it would behoove them to do so. What do you really see on the horizon? I think I'd start by reminding the audience of the scope and scale of the ESG regulatory framework. What have we not covered uh, in this discussion and what should be considered as a part of any, uh, you know, corporate response? Leah, when you tally up the existing reporting obligations, due diligence requirements, securities laws, trade controls, all prompting, you know, different levels of due diligence and reporting, stock exchange ESG listing requirements, you're looking at currently upwards of 45 different jurisdictions that each in their own way, in one way or another, have or purport to have ESG rules in place, each with their own flavor, scope, reach, liability regime. And, and there are more on, on the way, more under consideration. Uh, to say nothing of regulatory guidelines, uh, here I'd highlight Japan's newly released guidelines on corporate human rights due diligence that are also exerting pressure. Um, th these disparate global standards are, are causing tension. 
And this tension is not and will not be easily navigated owing to the different perspectives of users, the different implementation incentives in play, the different scopes, existing, emerging, and divergent approaches to simply complying with these regulations. You know, here referring to the the focus on financial materiality in the United States versus impact materiality in the EU and double materiality, which was introduced by the EU and, and which we are, you know, starting to, you know, see the contours of. So over the next six to 12 months, Leah, I, I think we expect to see risk models and, and governance structures changing in this highly fluid and emerging ESG environment. All of these regulations are in one way or another going to prompt greater flows of information that go not just to short-term, but to mid and long-term cost-benefit analysis that will shape disclosures and financial planning, also mitigation and remediation responses. Thank you so much to my three panelists today, helping us kind of walk through some of the things that are developing in the ESG space. There's so much to talk about and so much to keep your eye on that uh, it's helpful to have this wonderful framing of how clients are dealing with these issues. So thanks to Carolyn, Emily, and Matt, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast and Simpson Thatcher expressly disclaims all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher.